book of Proverbs, and our topic this evening, the sluggard, the sluggard. The book of Proverbs, as we've been seeing, is a book of practical wisdom. Uh, it's helping us to make godly decisions in every uh, area of life. And it has a great deal to say about work, which is exactly what you would expect because work is so important uh, to us all. When we speak about work, we're not, of course, speaking solely about paid work, but simply uh, work uh, that is done activity, gainful activity, uh, energetic, creative activity. And when we consider what Proverbs has to say about work in the workplace, uh, you might notice a slightly different approach to the teaching method. Uh, it holds up for us uh, the tragic, comic picture of the sluggard and uses this to uh, give us a negative example of one's attitude to work. Now, when you, when you read some of the descriptions of the sluggard, uh, inevitably we feel like smiling. It's such a funny picture that the word is painting of the sluggard. And that is intentional. We're, we're drawn in uh, to be amused at this rather pathetic individual. This individual, he's not only attached to his bed, so he doesn't want to leave his bed, but he's actually hinged to his bed. Uh, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Uh, he is fertile with excuses why he shouldn't uh, get outside and get on with some work. Uh, there's always some vague possibility that something might go wrong in his life if he goes out. There might, he says, be a lion outside. Uh, I might be murdered in the street. Now we, we read this, we smile. He's a comical figure, but he's also a pathetic, a tragic figure as well. And through the, the picture that we have here in Proverbs of the sluggard, we are given a view of the workplace as it has become, as it has been distorted, perverted indeed, because it was not always like this. Work was not always like this. The sluggard personifies the disordered attitude to work, but there was a time when it was not like this, and there is a time uh, when uh, things will change again. So we're going to look... Uh, if you like, uh, over the, the scope of, of Bible revelation, work being revealed in its original goodness, uh, work being ruined by the fall, and then uh, work being redeemed uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus. First of all, then, the Bible reveals work as something that was originally good. Work is good. The Bible is quite unequivocal about that. Work is good. It's not a punishment. Uh, it's, it's not something that uh, we wouldn't have to do if we were better people. It's something that God gave originally as a gift. Now in that, Christianity is different from many other religions and the account of creation is different from many other uh, creation myths. For example, if you take the myth of Pandora's box, then one of the ills to come out of the box and to plague mankind is labor, work. It's an ill. 
Not so in the Bible. God appears to us in the Bible as the great workman. All around the account in Genesis 1 are these signs before us. God at work. He's at work. He's creating the heavens and the earth. He's setting the stars in the sky. And then, after he's done the six days of creation, he rests from his work. When we're given the fourth commandment, we're told that six days we're to labor and on the seventh day we're to rest. And the pattern is God's work, God's activity. We often forget, don't we, that the commandment is uh, to work for six days as well as to rest on the Sabbath day. So there's a command, there's a, a work ethic embedded right there in the commandments. A work and a rest ethic. Adam and Eve are set in the garden. God doesn't tell them to get out the deck chair and to sunbathe. He doesn't tell them to take out the sketch pad and to, to paint the sunsets. But he sets them a working in the garden. They are to work in the garden. And in working in the garden, they will be fulfilling God's purpose for them. Their work will not be a disordered work. It will be a work which will bring them fulfillment and which will bless all their work impinges on. It will bless one another and it will be done unto God. Uh, now, we recognize that, don't we? When, when someone is perhaps feeling uh, downcast, then one of the best therapies that they can have is to find some creative outlet, uh, some work that matches their, their giftings, their creative instincts, and they're blessed in that. It's a good thing to work. And when we don't have work, uh, when we, we long to, to have paid employment, it can eventually get us down. It, it brings us down over time. Not only though is work a good thing for the individual, but we see from the, the opening uh, parts of the Bible that it's a good thing for, for others. It's a, a thing, a, a, an activity which blesses communally. The benefits of work aren't just for the individual, but they bless the family and the community. Uh, it's not just Adam that's set a working, it is Adam and Eve who are working in the garden. I was at a meeting for, for Christians involved in, in agriculture uh, last week, and one of the speakers was from a Christian charity called Send a Cow. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. It's a quite a small uh, charity working in East Africa, Eastern Africa. They're working with about 26,000 families. And one of, the, one of the foci of their work is to empower women in the small-scale agriculture that's the backbone of Eastern Africa. Traditionally, women have no part in the decision-making of land use. Uh, they uh, are, are some beasts of burden, but they don't really have any involvement in what goes on. And their work involves bringing women fully into the, the blessedness of work. And as a result, there are different indicators that show how their their well-being and their social standing uh, is raised up by that. Work 
was given to mankind as an activity that blesses others. But thirdly, it doesn't only bless ourselves and others, but we may offer it unto God. Now there's an interesting uh, couple of verbs in Genesis 2 where Adam and Eve are told to, to work and take care of the garden. To work and take care of it. In other words, they're to cultivate and conserve it in a sense. And the two verbs that are used there are, are used later on in the context of priestly duty in the temple. What's that saying to us? It's saying to us that when we do work with a spade, we may worship God. When we do work at the computer, we may work as unto the Lord. Work may be offered as part of our worship to God. When we arrive in heaven, we are not, let me reassure you, we are not going to be floating around on on clouds, plucking harps. We will work. We, his people, will serve him. We will have work which will employ all our redeemed powers, which will satisfy us fully as we serve the Lamb. There will be no boredom in heaven. There will be fulfillment in heaven as we worship and serve the Lord Jesus. But that is not, of course, the way it is now. The work and its goodness that is revealed has become the work that has been ruined and distorted by the fall. Work was affected by the fall. Our first parents rebelled against God and they refused to trust him. They refused to obey him. And the curse fell upon the workplace. The working of the land that had been a source of blessing would now become an activity that was frustrated by the ground itself. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And one of the ways that this disordered state that work has fallen into is seen today is in the attitude of the slant. Proverbs holds up to our gaze this tragic comic uh, figure of the sluggard and says, this is what has become of our attitude to work. The sluggard, uh, he's not a fool exactly, but he's very close to the fool. Uh, he, he'll not take counsel, he despises wisdom, and his path leads to ruin. So he's very close to that uh, archetypal fool that we meet with in Proverbs. He hates work and he'll do all that he can to avoid it. Now we're going to have a look at the, the picture that we have of the, pro, of, of the slugger that Proverbs uh, paints for us and see uh, his lifestyle or his, his inactivity and how that inactivity uh, brings about uh, ruin to himself and to others. First of all, notice about the sluggard, he cannot begin things. If you go to the sluggard and ask him when he's going to get going, when he's going to make a start, well, you're, you're being just a little bit too precise and exacting there. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't say uh, outright that uh, he's not going to do anything, but he won't be quite willing to give you a starting time. He just wants a little bit more sleep. And then he'll think about things, a little sleep, a little folding 
of the hands to rest. He won't commit to himself. And by this vagueness, uh, by his putting off things, his opportunities slip away. And the trouble is that in life, things, if they're to be done, tend to need to be done in time. And if that opportunity is lost because you keep on putting it off, then it will never get done. The slugger does not plough in season, so at harvest time he looks, but he finds nothing. If you don't get the plough out at the time of uh, spring, then you lose the opportunity. You can't make up that lost time. And God has made us as people who need to think ahead. This is part of our being made in the image of God. We were not made to live merely for the moment. We have been made with an eternal perspective. We have an eternity to prepare for, to ready ourselves for. And we must do that right now while we are living in this world. The fool and the sluggard will not think beyond the short term beyond the pleasures of the moment, the idleness that they're savouring at the moment. They refuse to make provision for the future, whether that's a material future or whether it's their eternal spiritual future. They're living only for the day. I wonder how that reflects on you, upon me. Are we living uh, as we were created with a view towards an eternal perspective. What about that winter of the soul, where our physical capacities decline and when we know that we are nearing the end, are we ready to step into eternity? Have we made provision now? Well, we can to be right with God. And so... Proverbs takes us and points us to one of the littlest of God's creatures to be our instructor. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Go to the ant. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet, it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Doesn't have anyone to nudge it on all the time saying, get on with the work, get on with the work simply goes ahead and lays up in the summertime, in the time of plenty, for the time when there will be a lack of food. It makes provision for the future. It makes a start. Go to the ant. The sluggard, of course, doesn't begin. The sluggard doesn't either finish when he does begin. You know, lazy people are often characterized by being romantic dreamers Uh, who are always talking uh, of the big project and may make a start but never actually finish it. The lazy man does not roast his game but the diligent man prizes his possession. What's going on here? Pictures of the man who goes out hunting and he shoots his game but he doesn't do anything with it. And whether it's a rabbit or whether it's a deer, the carcass lies on the ground and it rots. He never gets around to roasting his game. He started, but he didn't finish it. 
I've seen plenty of, of people in different contexts who uh, got a start-up from maybe friends or even the government and they had big plans. They were given perhaps a, a, a computer or a shop floor space or a van for self-employment. And after a big flourish of activity, nothing. The computer lies unused. The shop lies vacant. And then you have this really extreme picture of the non-finisher in chapter 26, verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it to his mouth again. He will not finish. He can't finish. He's a non-finisher. And part of the reason is that he can't face up to things. He doesn't begin. He doesn't finish. And he can't face up to things. He's an expert at making excuses for his laziness. His physical body may be slow, but he has a mind that's working overtime, rationalizing why he doesn't need to do X, Y, and Z. There's always a reason for his apathy, for his inactivity. There's always a plausible explanation. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside, or I will be murdered in the streets. (laughs) Now, there are no lions in Israel today, but there were at one time before they were hunted to extinction. But yet, when there were, the chances of meeting a lion in the street were remote indeed. And of course, it's always possible that if you step outside your house to go to work, that you might be murdered in the street. There's no guarantee you won't, but it's hardly a reason, is it, to stay hinged to your bed. Think of many of the excuses people give when they phone in sick. Tremendous ingenuity involved in them. And the point is that the sluggard is creating a crisis that prevents him from doing something he didn't want to do anyway. And he ends up finally hurting himself and others. He's someone who's always restless because he has desires, he's got cravings, but he never does anything to achieve things, and so they're never satisfied. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. He hurts himself because he's always craving something, and he also hurts others. Remember, work, we said, was a communal activity. It's meant to bless others, but laziness hurts others. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son. But he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Notice the deliberate use of the word son here. I think what we're meant to understand is that there was a responsibility he had to the family. He had a responsibility to the parents or to his siblings to gather in the harvest. But instead he slept. He's a disgrace as a son. He exasperates his friends. Uh, He soaks up time and energy instead of contributing. One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. If you remember the last uh, set of verses that we looked at, there was an eerie quality as uh, Solomon goes past the habitation of the sluggard. There is a a picture of one who has ruined his life. And perhaps we're intended to think of someone who has ruined his life, not only for this life, but for the life to come. 
I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. And how did it get to this? Well, the, the teaching on, on the sluggard is bookended in Proverbs by a similar verses. It's the, the verses about the, the folding of the hands and so on. And in the second, when Solomon uh, tells us to take note of a principle that he has observed. There's a lesson to be gleaned from his observations. He says in chapter 24, uh, verse 31, I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. What is he saying? What is our instructor telling us? He's telling us that laziness isn't something, isn't a disposition that you, you suddenly take on. It's something that creeps up on you. Little by little. He's just, the sluggard is just an ordinary man or woman who has made too many excuses down the road. Too many refusals to do something. Too many postponements. And it's all been easy. It's been like the folding of the hands. It's been like the dozing off for just a little bit more rest. But in falling asleep, he finds himself having fallen into the snare of poverty. That was work ruined. It's the hope for the sluggard, for for our work is there hope for the one who loves his bed more than the field? Is there hope for another kind of uh, shyness of work? The workaholic. The workaholic who uses his work outside the home as an excuse for his responsibilities at home or in the church. Is there a hope for that kind of shying clear of work? Proverbs is always pushing us towards Jesus. Always making us, as, as New Covenant people think, what a difference Jesus makes in this context. Jesus, you see, has come to redeem us as, as entire people. He didn't come just to save souls, disembodied souls. He came to save us as people living in communities. He's entered the world of thorns and thistles and he reveals himself to us as a great workman. When you open up the Gospels, when you read any of the Gospels, I think probably especially Mark's Gospel, which has this rapid pace, you consider the life of our Lord and you are impressed inevitably by the very busyness of Jesus. He's going about all the time. He's preaching the word. He's healing the sick. He's giving hope and encouragement to the downhearted. His ministry is one of energetic activity. He tells his disciples, my father is always at work and so must I. There was no laziness in the sinless humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is, in all 
and especially in his cross work. He is the great worker whose work saves us from our sin. It's very interesting, you know, that when you, when you think of all of the, all of the myths and history of, of, of lands before the gospel came, lands to which the gospel came late, perhaps, there's often a preparation in the, the, the way of, of uh, people's thinking for the great truths of the, the Bible, of the gospel. And in different ways, people are prepared to think of salvation as a work that must be done. I'm thinking of the, the Greek myth of the labor of Hercules. And it, it goes something like this. Uh, Hercules, or, or, or Heracles, uh, <coughs> kills uh, his six sons in a, in a fit of madness. And he's filled with remorse and he goes to the oracle at Delphi and he asks for instruction as to how he can atone for this dreadful act. And he's told uh, at the oracle that he's to submit uh, to the labors that the king uh, Eurystheus will set for him. And if he is able to perform these 12 labors, then uh, his misdeed will be atoned for. He will work forgiveness and he will gain immortality. Wow. It's a, a nice story. But friends, we have, we have a hero who has worked salvation not for his own sins but for the sins of his people whose labors have secured our salvation Jesus comes saying my father is at work always and I also must work we see Jesus laboring up Calvary's hill groaning under the weight of a cross of wood ground into the dust Finally laid in the dust of death. We're prepared by the Old Testament which speaks of salvation as being a work. His right hand and his holy arm have got him the victory. The idea of the Lord exerting himself to liberate his people from Egypt. The Lord will work his salvation. Jesus comes our hero and our workman who labours On our behalf. And in doing so. He does this wonderful thing. He frees us from one kind of work. And brings us into another. Because Jesus has worked our salvation. We do not need to. Nor must we attempt to work salvation for ourselves. We must simply accept salvation as his gift. When the Jews come to Jesus and they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Our Savior says to them, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. You don't earn your merit to gain heaven. You receive the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because it alone is a complete work. Here's the first question then. Have you believed in Jesus? 
who has worked salvation on your behalf? Have you received from his hand that finished work? He calls us to turn away from our own works of self-righteousness and trust in his work of salvation. And if you come to Jesus, you find a true rest in his that is far, far, far removed from laziness. It's a rest from the frustration of never attaining the perfections God requires and instead finding that he has done all the work of salvation for you and in the place of laboring for salvation, he brings you into a new work altogether. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, the deep rest of forgiveness. The rest from trying to earn God's acceptance. But Jesus hasn't finished. He goes on. Take my yoke upon you. and Learn of me. For I am gentle and humble in spirit. And you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke. You're the wooden yoke that kept the oxen together as they were coupled and drew the plough. Take my yoke. Jesus' yoke. It's an easy yoke. Why is it an easy yoke? Because when we want to obey him, when we want to yield Jesus our obedience, when we want to work for him, he's given us already the desire in our hearts to do it. That inner propulsion doesn't stem from wanting to earn salvation, but one of gratitude. Accepted and loved by God, assured of our place in God's family, we take up a new desire to fulfill our family responsibilities. In the church at Thessalonica, uh, some of them, because of a distorted theology, uh, were were becoming lazy. They had actually stopped working. And Paul doesn't spare them when he speaks to them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked Night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden on you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, Paul is not giving us a stick to to beat up. over the head, those who uh, can't find work or are sick or prevented from working in different ways. But it's a reminder that all of us should do whatever we can to demonstrate that we are not lazy. And if it's possible for us to uh, be in a situation where we're paid for our employment, we should see that not just as a blessing for ourselves, but as a means to help and bless others. That is the end as far as the the purpose for the Christian of work. You know, you, you can look upon the workplace as a way of simply 
pumping yourself up. You know, how good am I? I've got to the top of my career. Well, I'm afraid that's not God's vision for the workplace. But rather it is that we might engage in something that we may offer to him in our worship. And which will give us resources to serve others. There's hardly a better description of the transforming grace that touches our attitude to work than what we have in Ephesians 4.28. The transformation of the gospel. Listen to these words. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with others. Gospel changes things. Gospel changes lives, changes families, changes communities, changes towns and cities, changes countries, changes us from being from parasites to being producers, from people whose laziness is destructive to ourselves and to society, to people whose work blesses ourselves. And those around us. Shall we ask God to bless us. With this perspective from the gospel. That whatever we do this week. And whether or not we're paid for what we do. We demonstrate the ethic of the gospel. And in our attitude. And in our actions. We glorify God. Let us pray. Our heavenly father we. We bless you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the, the artistry of your instruction. For the way that you hold up to our view the tragedy of one who shirks work. Lord, deliver us from every lazy attitude. Help us, Lord. To have a busyness and an energy about what we do that glorifies you. Lord, fill us with compassion. That we might encourage others. And model a proper attitude to work. So that we are neither enslaved by it. Nor terrified by it. But rather offer it up to you. As part of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.